And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Father, we are thankful this morning for someone who labored over our soul, some who labored in prayer, some who gave a word of testimony that was like living seed because it was based on your word, and then someone who walked us through the plan of salvation that we might hear and believe. You told us that we are not to say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Lord Jesus, you said right now the fields are white unto harvest. The harvest can take place every day for those who have eyes to see and those who are willing to labor in it. We thank you that there are many expressions of being engaged in this labor, many who will sow even this week just in inviting someone to church some who will reap, but we know we cannot reap without the seed first being planted. And we know that harvest is hard work, it's labor. And so we ask that we would be faithful laborers. I pray that this would just not be another week where we leave here and we just come back all by ourselves without any thought for anyone else. But Father, please stir the hearts of your people on every campus this week. Help me, help everyone within the sound of my voice, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, Awana workers, nursery workers, those who sing in the choir, those who work as ushers, those who are adult Bible fellowship leaders, help our whole church family this week to be faithful. Now, Father, you are faithful to us even when we are faithless, for you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you for your word that is faithful and true. And as we read it and study it this morning, we thank you, too, that you sent the Spirit as our earnest, as our guarantee, as our pledge that the work that you've begun, you will complete. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for pouring your love into our hearts, for being our helper as we rely to, on you. And we ask for your help this morning as we open the Scripture that this would be more than just some academic exercise, but that you would take the word that you inspired and illuminate it to each and every person listening, that we would be changed by our exposure to it. Help me, Spirit of God, not just in this service, but in the hour that will follow on the Bluffton campus. And then again tonight as we have a meet the pastor for our guests Please fill me and anoint me, because without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. Help me to lift up Jesus. Thank you. That's your ministry, to exalt him. Help me to do that. And Father, I ask this in your son's holy name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 21. If this is your first Sunday here, you'll be interested to know that we have been systematically, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, working expositionally through this great revelation. And last week, by way of introduction, we just looked at one verse, Revelation 1.1, and we compared it really with Genesis chapter 1. 
And we saw how the two interfaced one another. Well, today I want to pick up again in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 8. You can see this is part one in a series of messages on when heaven comes to earth. You know, we often sing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. But what is heaven really like? Sometimes when I share the gospel and I ask people how certain they are if they were to die, they'd go to heaven. On occasion, a person will say, well, I'm not even sure I believe in heaven. I'm not sure there is a heaven. May I remind you that everything you believe is based on something. Either you made it up, someone told you, you read it in a book, but just believing it does not make it true. I'm going to tell you this morning what I believe about heaven, but I'm not going to be sharing my own mind. I'm going to be sharing what God says right here in His inerrant and infallible Word. Now, I want us to look at heaven as it's described here in the first eight verses of the Revelation. This book opens by calling itself the Apocalypsis, the revelation, the uncovering of Jesus Christ. And please note that the key is in the front door in the first verse of the Revelation as to what this book is really all about. This book is not written to conceal, but to reveal. It's not written to leave you with some kind of mysterious experience, but with a life-changing message that will make you more like Jesus Christ. Now, if you read the book and all you see are beasts and plagues and death and destruction and famine and supernatural disasters, and you don't see the Lord Jesus, then read it again. Because this book ultimately is about Him. He is the central character in this book. And even here in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, it's a picture of the place where Jesus is this morning and a brand new world and a brand new city. And we're going to see how he describes this new city and this new world that is yet to be created. Now, interestingly, a recent national survey was done by Pew Research on heaven. And 76% of Americans said that they believed in heaven. 71% said it was an actual place. And beyond that, there was a lot of differences and the agreement broke down. 19% said it looked like a garden. 13% said it looked like a city. 17% said, I have no idea what it is like. Well, none of us have ever been there and come back, but we don't have to because God at least gives us a semblance of what this place is like. Revelation chapter 1, beginning now in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things had passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
Now, we've covered a lot of ground thus far in our study of the Revelation, but for the benefit of those who are new and for the benefit of the rest of us so that we really have a big picture of the book, let me walk you into the context. The book opened in chapter 1 with a glorious vision of the resurrected, ascended Christ in heaven. And then in chapter 2, we saw, and in chapter 3, Christ speaking to seven real specific churches that were in existence in the first century. And he sent seven personal letters to them. And these churches really are representative of any church in any particular generation. And these letters are receiving powerful words from Christ where they are challenged and they are rebuked. Then in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5, because of the rapture that has taken place and a door in heaven that is opened, we saw the first songs of heaven where millions of God's redeemed along with millions and millions of angels are singing in the presence and in the throne room of God. Then in chapter 6, a, tor- a corner was turned as the four horsemen of the apocalypse gathered uh, together and then galloped across the world. And as they brought these different judgments upon the world that begins to instigate the worst time human history has ever known. So from chapter 6 all the way through the 18th chapter, we see judgment after judgment after judgment, 21 specific judgments as they come in seals, trumpets, and in bowls. And then, of course... During this time, we learned of a one-world leader with a one-world government and a one-world religion. He's called the Beast, but most popularly known today by John's designation of him in the first letter called the Antichrist. And millions of people will give allegiance to this world leader. But at the same time, God, through two witnesses, through 144,000 Jews have been raised up, and by an eternal angel, the gospel will be preached, the great commission will be fulfilled, this gospel of the world shall go to the whole world, and then the end will come, that will be fulfilled during this time frame, and millions and millions of people will give their life to Jesus, but scores and scores will be executed because of this evil leader who boldly, brazenly, braggingly raises his puny fist in the face of God Almighty and defies the living God. Then we saw in chapter 19, Jesus literally comes to the earth. First, he comes to catch up the church in the rapture. Then the second coming unfolds in the 19th chapter. And at that moment, he will destroy the Antichrist and his false prophet. And the scripture says they are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. Chapter 20 then introduced us to the millennial reign of the Messiah on the earth. And during this thousand years, Satan is locked up in a place known as the abyss. And we learn the purpose of this thousand years, five or six purposes, why God will literally actually rule and reign upon the earth as we pray in the Lord's prayer. Most people have no idea today what they're praying because of the biblical ignorance that sweeps our nation. But we pray, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for his kingdom to come. But interestingly, those who are able to enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies, we will have already been raised up and resurrected, but there will be people who will survive the tribulation, Jew and Gentile alike, 
and their salvation is secure, but their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will each need to make personal decisions for Christ. And even though it's a near-perfect climate on the planet, where the animal kingdom is in harmony with man, where the lion will lay down with the wolf, the baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed, while people are in near-perfect health, living very, very long lives, with Jesus ruling justly from David's throne there in the city of Jerusalem, in spite of all of that, at the end of the thousand years, those who had not received Jesus, you'd say, why would they not receive him? For the same reason, when he was here the first time, they did not receive him. Men love the darkness rather than the light. And Satan, who's been in prison for a thousand years, who had no influence over the decision of these unbelievers, will be loosed, and he will gather a great multitude to go against Jesus there in Jerusalem. And in a moment's time, Jesus will end it all, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. With the millennial reign over, the current heaven and earth will flee away. And before God makes a new heaven and a new earth, we studied in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment. It's a judgment where all the unbelievers of all time are brought together, and then they are not, they are cast into the lake of fire. People don't just go to hell. They are cast there by God Almighty as an eternal just judgment. Now in these final two chapters, much of what we will read concerns the new Jerusalem, the place where your loved one goes today. We often refer to it simply as heaven. Now, I need to again say that oftentimes people will take a number of Old Testament passages that have nothing to do with heaven but have everything to do with the millennial reign of Messiah, and they'll say, well, this is what heaven is like. Well, clearly there are some parallels between the earth as it will exist during the millennial reign of Jesus, but there are some dramatic differences. But you need to know that what drives their conclusions is they believe there is no future for Israel, that the church is the new Israel. And so they don't know what to do with these kingdom passages in the Old Testament, and they just tell people, this is what heaven is like. Well, it's not. And we are going to find out what it is really like here. And so this morning on your note-taking outline, there are four characteristics of this new world in this new city that will come through a new heaven that will descend on this new world that I want you to think about. Number one, the first truth is that heaven is a permanent place. Heaven is a permanent place. We studied last week that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Every time you see the phrase, then I saw, a phrase we've seen all the way through the Revelation, God is about ready to introduce a new section. He is signaling us of new truth that he is about to unfold. So chronologically, what happens here happens after the millennial reign, after the great white throne judgment. And John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And what he sees is not something that is temporary, but something that is quite permanent. A new heaven and a new earth cannot appear until the old heaven and the old earth disappears. And so the original creation that has been spoiled by sin, filled with war and greed and immorality, is going to be totally destroyed. And so God will make a new creation. Now, verse 1 
is occasionally preached, again, by those who don't see any future for Israel. So they have to take some of the Old Testament passages and even some phrases in the gospel, and they say, well, what God is going to do is he's going to facelift the current world, and that's where we will spend eternity. No, God's not talking about renovating the planet. He's talking about obliterating the planet. Now, it is true that during the reign of Christ on the earth, the world will be renovated. Jesus spoke of that in the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you, meaning the 12 apostles, of course, excluding Judas, so he's going to be replaced by Matthias, that you, the 12 apostles who have followed me in the regeneration, that's the reign of Messiah on the earth, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's never happened. It's going to happen. These apostles are promised some unique role, not really elucidated for us too much, but in some way they will be involved in judging and evaluating their own Jewish brethren. Now this verse and others like it speak of a time frame when God will give a facelift to the earth. And it's during this time when Jesus there on the Temple Mount will rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem, just as the prophets of old had foretold. But John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So clearly, he's describing of something that is totally new. And again, when you hear and maybe even read some of these popular books on heaven, and you're not sure about their explanation, remember the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so a good rule of interpretation is when you have a clear, specific passage Interpret what you think is unclear in light of what you know to be absolutely true and very clear because God cannot contradict himself. So the idea of a new earth coming through a new atmosphere, a new sky, is a theme that is found not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. For instance, in Isaiah, the 65th chapter, after he had spent some time describing what the earth would be like when Jesus or Yeshua or the Messiah... Isaiah didn't know his name yet, would rule on the earth, he makes this statement about a time after the millennium. He said, for behold, God is speaking, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And interesting, the word here for create is the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. It's the Hebrew word bara. It means to create from nothing. And so God, once again, out of nothing is going to create a brand new world. He's not going to refashion the current world. He's going to create from nothing a new world. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 102, of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Then he adds, even they will perish, but you will endure and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Jesus, making it crystal clear, made this statement in Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. God tells us that heaven and earth will pass away. But then he says, my, earth, my words will not pass away. Peter describes it in this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said that we are to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. 
because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We're not talking about a remake. We're talking about a total meltdown. And then he said, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And interestingly, Peter uses the identical word for new that John uses in Revelation 21.1 when he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's the Greek word kainos. He could have used another word, but he chose this word because it speaks of new in character, fresh in kind. God is not going to fix up the current planet in heavens. The heavens above shout death. There's death across the whole planetary system. It's God putting man on notice that when man sinned, all of creation fell with it. But God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, during the millennium, the Old Testament teaches and Jesus taught God will give a facelift to the current planet. But at the end of the millennium, he's going to create a brand new heaven. Why? Because the drama of sin has been unfolding on this world and in the heavens above. And so God is going to make something that is spanking brand new. And it's worth noting that the new heaven here referred to is not the place where God is or your loved ones are this morning. The first heaven is the blue sky that you breathe the air in each day. The second heaven is the planets above and the stars and the outer atmosphere. But Paul also spoke in 2 Corinthians of a third heaven, and it's the place where God lives. It's God's abode. And so the second coming will be followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And the evidence is absolutely conclusive. And this coming future day, it is still ahead of us. Unlike today, as I hope to show you in a moment, the heaven that God is going to create will be brand new, as will be the planet. And the place that we call heaven, the third heaven to be technical, is going to literally, actually, physically come down and sit on the earth. Now, it's interesting that a whole lot is not given to us about this coming new heaven and the new earth. But I'm not totally surprised about that. Because for over 2,000 years, the body of Christ, much like Old Testament believers in the past, have asked, where are my loved ones? What are they doing this morning if they are in heaven? What is heaven really like? Because that is the place that God's people have been going for 2,000 years when God un, uh, emptied out Sheol, righteous Sheol, and he brought even all the Old Testament saints, and from the mo that moment on since the ascension, the moment a believer dies, he is absent from the body and present with the Lord. So you would expect that God would devote a lot of time to this place called the New Jerusalem, the Father's house. But there is some truths here that are given to us about the new earth and even the new heaven. For instance, this verse states specifically, there will no longer be any sea. And again, these popular books on heaven that blur the millennium really have to undo a lot of passages of Scripture because the word here for sea is a word that refers to what we call the oceans. And three-quarters of this world are covered by seawater, by salt water. Now, this does not mean that there won't be any freshwater lakes or beaches or anything like that. 
But most of the world is covered by salt water. And science tells us that the salt waters of this world act like a great antiseptic solution because so much waste that is even poured into the oceans. Nonetheless, the whole process of evaporation is able to take place and the rain is able to come. Add to that, the vast oceans will not be as critical as they are today because right now they divide many of the nations of the world. Nations that have been filled historically with war and hatred towards one another, and there'll be no war in heaven. But with that said, keep in mind that the fact that there's no more sea does not mean that there's no bodies of water. We've already learned all the way back in Revelation chapter 4 that the throne of God sits on a glassy sea. And when we come to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1, we will learn that there is a river that flows from the throne of God, and so it has to cascade somewhere. So this does not mean there won't be any freshwater lakes or freshwater beaches, or for that matter, even waves, even though there will be no moon. If God wants to make waves, he can do whatever he wants to do as the creator God. But we have every reason to anticipate that since God's creative hand made the planet that we are on, even though it has fallen, it declares His glory, that there will be some similarities between the two. Look again at verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And so like the new earth, not a whole lot is said about the new heaven. Why? Well, probably it's beyond our comprehension. But when we come several weeks from now to verse 23, because it will take us a while to get there, we do learn in verse 23 that there's no sun or moon, and by application or implication, I suppose, no stars. So no landmarks as we know it today. And yet this is a real place where real people and real resurrection bodies will someday live. Evangelist D.L. Moody, in describing the eternal state of believers, wrote these words. He said, my heaven is a solid heaven. After the resurrection has come, you will have a resurrection foot and something to walk on, a resurrection eye and color and substances to see it with, a resurrection ear and voices and music to regale it, a resurrection heart and love to satisfy it. Now, those loved ones who have gone on, who knew Jesus... They are not in their resurrection bodies yet. We've already studied that. They are awaiting the resurrection of their body. Their body is, so to speak, asleep in the grave. But God will raise it up someday. They apparently have some kind of a temporary body, as we studied all the way back in Revelation 4 and 5. But they are waiting for a new resurrected body that will happen at the rapture, and that first resurrection will continue at the second coming. But just as Carl Brogy needs a new birth to be able to enter this new place that God has, and by the way, if you've not had the new birth, you need it. You say, I'm not one of those born-again Christians. Well, that may be by ignorance or that may be by choice. But Jesus said three times over, unless you are born again, you will never see the inside of heaven. And if you're not sure what that means, you should definitely come next week. But just as I need a new birth, the planet is going to need a new birth as well. And God is going to remove every vestige of sin and evil 
and it will be a permanent place. This place is temporary. It will pass away, but the one that God is going to make will be forever and ever. So heaven is a permanent place. Second there in your outline. I want you to see that heaven is a prepared place. It's a prepared place. Look now, if you will, at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. This New Jerusalem comes from the third heaven. Again, that's the place where God is this morning. Let me give you some biblical names for heaven. They're all referring to the same place in Scripture. For instance, in John 14, in verse 2, Jesus spoke of heaven as the Father's house. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, I just mentioned it, Paul spoke of heaven as the third heaven, the abode of God. Above the first heaven, the air, above the starry skies, there is the third heaven where God is. In Luke 23, 2 Corinthians 12, and Revelation 2, it's called paradise or the paradise of God. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5, it's called the kingdom of God in Christ. We'll come to it later, but the term kingdom is used in different ways in the Bible. But one of the expressions is that place where God's people are this morning. It's called in Revelation 3 and in verse 12, along with this chapter, the New Jerusalem. And in Revelation 21, in verse 2 and again in verse 10, it's called the Holy City. So it's seen here by John as coming down from heaven, and it literally becomes the capital city of a new earth. We might call this downtown heaven, so to speak. So right now, that's where your loved ones are, but that's just a fraction of where we are going to spend eternity. Now, there's a famous hymn done by Pastor Malt B. Babcock. Many of you have sung it with us. Matt has led us in it. This is my father's world. He was a long-winded preacher and music minister the 15th verse in that hymn, which is the third verse in our, in our hymnal, says this, this is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be won. He recognized from this text in the Revelation, as the prophets affirmed of old, that heaven and earth will be one because literally the new Jerusalem will come and sit down on this earth. Notice further, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready. See those words, made ready? It's the Greek word, etoimazo. It means to prepare. In fact, it's the exact same word that Jesus uses in John 14 when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And describing the great men and women of the Old Testament era, the writer of the Hebrews, in describing these saints said that they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, same Greek word, he has prepared, and here it's called a city for them. Now, you know, if God has prepared a city known as heaven, known as paradise, known as my father's house, and known here in verse 2 as the new Jerusalem, then you know it's got to be spectacular. It is being made ready. God is putting the finishing touches on it. And when it comes down out of where it is right now through a new heaven and sits on a new earth, that's officially when eternity future will begin. Now, the truth is it's that the average Christian 
again, because we live in a society where the pulpits are void of Bible teaching. And I know we have visitors who come here every week, and they think not to bring a Bible, and they're right, because they've never needed one before in most churches. But I'm not here to run my mind and to preach my opinion, but to share with you God's Word. But because we live in a totally biblically illiterate culture, people have all kinds of distorted views of what heaven is like. They think, well, we're just going to go there and just do a lot of singing. And they think, man, I don't know that I want to sing for all of eternity. And if the truth were known, some of them feel kind of guilty, and they think, well, after we've gone through the hymnal for the 10th millionth time, what are we going to do next? And they've never really thought about it. And again, even this book, The Revelation, it's one of the more neglected books in all of the New Testament. But we're going to be experiencing the glory of God in a way that man has never seen it before. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This is just the capital city. Again, it's downtown heaven. And one of the reasons God spends nearly two chapters describing this place more than any place in all of the Bible is because he wants us to have a right perspective on it. Put out in the margin next to verse 2, Revelation 3.12, Revelation 3.12, where we find really the first inkling of this prophecy that John is stating here for us. Jesus is speaking to one of seven churches here, the church at Philadelphia, and he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. Now, in this verse, notice the new Jerusalem is described as the city of my God, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And the fact that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven tells us it's already in existence. And of course, it is. And it will be distinct from this new planet that he is going to make. He will literally bring the Father's house out of the third heaven through the second heaven and it will land on planet earth in the same place that the city of Jerusalem is sitting today. It will literally be down out of heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. Look further. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, from God. Now think about that. This is coming down out of heaven from God, the new Jerusalem. This is where your loved ones are right now. And again, heaven will be more than one big song service. A lot of Christians secretly feel guilty. They, you know, how can we sing for all of eternity? Gary Lawson, a Christian cartoonist, understanding that many people have a distorted view of heaven and sometimes are too afraid to admit what they think about heaven, he draws a picture of a man sitting on a cloud with a halo with the, like, with the expression of someone who's marooned on a desert island. And he's sitting there strumming his harp, and the caption says, I wish I had brought something, maybe a magazine or something else to read. <laughs> the truth is, is that this new world is going to be so magnificent, it's just going to blow your socks off. We will be there in unfallen, glorified, sinless bodies. Since I have been pastoring this church, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals, over 500, and many of our members have gone home to glory, and they're with the Lord Jesus. 
And I'm not sure how it will all work. You know, are we going to meet with friends and loved ones one at a time or in small groups? Or maybe we'll rotate across the planet and meet our brothers and sisters who lived at different times in human history and in different places. We're not told exactly how God is going to do it. But I do know that what God has said, we can hold on to, and we need to be careful not to go beyond what God hasn't said. Do you remember Paul the Apostle? He said this in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 2, because he wants us to know that this coming world is beyond our imaginations. I know a man, he said, in Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Again, this slide, just so you have it fixed in your mind. God describes in Deuteronomy 11, 1 Kings 8, Isaiah 55, 10, what we call the first heaven. It's described as the atmosphere. Then he describes the second heaven in Psalm 8, uh, Genesis 15, 5, Isaiah 13, 10. Those are the stars above, outer space. And then there's the third heaven, the home of God. First Kings 8 refers to it like that, as does Psalm 33, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, as does the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, here in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Unlike modern pretenders and shysters and con artists and these books that are being sold to evangelicals, which we will discuss later on in this series, these people who died, they said, and went to heaven, and now they're selling you their books, and these Christian magazines like Charisma Magazine that is just rampant with utter heresy, a magazine, so-called Christian, that even this week defamed one of the great men of God in this country, John MacArthur. I have no respect for that magazine, and I never have. But you have these people who have had these heavenly experiences, and they're big shots. Ego is a mile wide, and they want to tell you what they experienced. And yet Paul, when... He has given a vision. He said it was so real. I'm not sure if I was literally physically actually there in my body or if it was just a, a vision. But he said he heard something that consisted of inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. That is, what he heard was in a language so unlike the things that we see on earth, he was not allowed to share it. And while he understood what was said... There were no words in human language that could be even able to convey it with, and he was not allowed to convey it. And just so he'd have a continual reminder never to even brag about the splendor of what he had, God gave him some kind of physical ailment, a thorn in his flesh. I mean, describing heaven, we can take what we've gotten here, but this is just a glimpse. Describing heaven based on what Paul said, it would be like me describing what it's like to drive a car to my little infant grandson. It'd be like trying to describe humility to a Clemson fan. I mean, it's almost impossible. <laughs> they crushed my school yesterday. We, don't clap. <laughs> we often talk about heaven, the blessed hope. And we talk about the hope of it, but not always the blessed hope side of it. 
Blessed speaks of happy and jubilant and glorious. But here in verse 2, this place is also described as a holy city. Notice, I saw the holy city. Please know that the new Jerusalem is not like any city we know of on earth. There's no break-ins here, no police officers necessary, no violence in this place. God alone will rule. No sin will ever enter it. And everyone present will be in a glorified body. There'll not be any sin, any corruption. It is a holy city. It is set apart. Understand that when people like Abraham, as elucidated in Hebrews 11, are said to desire a better country, Hebrews 11:6, a heavenly one, further described as a city that God has prepared for them, that his conception of some of these terms might be different from ours. You see, when the nomadic people of Israel wandered in the wilderness, they thought of a city as a place of safety and joy and peace and fellowship. And Abraham was looking to a city because the Jewish people had wandered and wandered and wandered throughout their history. And they looked for a city of their own. And a person who is wandering is looking for a city where there's warmth and there's fellowship and there's friendship and there's food and there's safety. And no wonder it's called in the New Testament a home. It's a home. And remember, this is just the capital city that will sit on a new planet. Further reading into verse 2, this place is called not just a holy city, but notice it's described as a bride adorned for her husband. You see that word adorned? It's the Greek word cosmeto. We get our word cosmetics from it. It means to decorate, to make beautiful. Yesterday, my wife has these butterfly plants. They're still blooming. And I was just looking at a brand new monarch that had just hatched out. And there he was flapping his little wings, drying them out. And I looked at the intricacies on that little monarch's wings that God like drew from heaven. God who, who drew a monarch's design, who created the softness of a rose petal, who designed the human body, is preparing a place. He's going to adorn it. And so while Israel in the Old Testament is called the bride of Jehovah, and while under the new covenant, the church is called the bride of Christ, this city is called the holy city. It's the bride city, so to speak. It is also called the bride. You know, a woman comes down the aisle beautifully adorned. She fixes herself up as best she can, and we sing, here comes the bride. Well, God is saying this city coming down out of heaven, here comes the bride, so to speak, and it will be filled with all the Old Testament saints and all the new covenant saints, all those who have gone on. Now you marry off a daughter. I only had one to marry, praise the Lord. It's expensive, <laughs> you know, and it costs a lot of money, and you really don't want to spare the expense. You want to make it nice. But I had to cut the budget in places, but I want to tell you, God will spare no expense. He will spend whatever it costs to make this place beautiful. I've been to some places on planet Earth that are absolutely breathtaking to me. And yet this Earth has fallen. While the heavens are declaring the glory of God, Paul tells us it's still a fallen creation. It's not as beautiful as it once was. Not to mention it's been marred and spoiled by sin. 
But when God creates a new heaven and a new earth and this capital city, it will be a place, Peter said, in which righteousness dwells. All of the great power of God, all of the great wisdom of God will pull it off. It will be the most beautiful place anyone could ever imagine. And so it follows that heaven is not only a permanent place, that heaven is a prepared place. But now in verse 3, I want you to see that heaven is a pleasing place. We read now, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, following this initial revelation of the new Jerusalem, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is the 20th time he's heard a loud voice. And if you remember, each time it's loud because what is about to be said is very, very important. And since this is not the voice of God as it is in verses 5 and 6, this is no doubt as in all the other cases, one of God's angels giving an announcement. Notice the announcement. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. Now, the Bible gives a rather interesting record of the various dwelling places of God. First, God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which is what made Eden so magnificent and so wonderful. Beyond the luscious fruit and the perfect weather and the effortless work, what made it so wonderful is that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3.8. And Adam's highest privilege was he had companionship and intimacy with the living God who created him. But he lost that privilege through sin. And so now man is physically alive, but he is spiritually dead. God said, the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall certainly die. And he immediately died on the inside. He began to die on the outside. And so now we're born dying, we're aging and if the problem is not fixed, the third kind of death, the second death, eternal death, as it's also described, will come across your life. And that's why, why we live in this world physically alive and spiritually dead. So often on the inside, it's empty. We're depressed. We just wonder, what's the meaning of it all? And it's not until you are born from above that you really have eyes to see why God created you. Well, God first dwelt and walked with Adam and Eve, and later he tabernacled himself amongst the people of Israel, first through that portable tent called the tabernacle, and then through a more permanent structure known as the temple. And God would fill the Holy of Holies in that place. Still later on in the New Testament, in John 1.14, the same apostle writes, in the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you have the New American Standard out in the margin, it literally reads, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That is Jesus, the Lord God, literally came and he pitched his tent among man. Today, Christ is not physically here among us, and he doesn't live in man-made temples but he lives in the body of the redeemed. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are a holy temple in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he calls us the temple of God. But notice this dwelling place of God 
will be different. Look again at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them a second time. Right now, as born-again people, we've been made alive, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit such that we can worship God, but we cannot see God. But this somehow will all change dramatically when Christ comes for the church. At the end of verse 3, it says, and God himself will be among them. Now, we can't fully understand what this is going to look like, but someday, somehow, we will experience the glorious manifestation of the triune God in a way that we do not know him today. Now, the greatest miracle of this new universe with new bodies to walk in this new, new universe on a new earth in a new city is that the living God will be among us. In eternity, if you know Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, you will know a new intimacy with God that you can never, ever even conceive this morning. Now, while the presence of God will be the chief terror for every lost man who dies without Jesus, it will be the chief happiness and joy for every saved person. Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer. Listen to these words. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Our eyes will see him. Our ears will hear him. We will somehow behold his glory. This is what will make heaven truly heaven. But listen, if you went to heaven and Jesus was not there, It'd be like going on a honeymoon without your bride. It'd be like moving into your new home and, and your groom was living somewhere else. John's whole point, twice over so we cannot miss it, is God will be among them uninterrupted, eternal, perfect, unbroken fellowship. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the fact that there's no pain or death, all great things, but the Lord God will be there. You see, right now, we don't have unbroken fellowship. One moment, we're walking intimately with God. The next moment, sin interrupts it. Our fellowship is not perfect, but it will be in this place. It's a pleasing place because this is where God is, and there'll be no eternal sorrow in this place. And I say eternal sorrow because there will be some sorrow initially for some, according to verse 4. Did you see it? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In heaven, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which tells me initially some will weep in heaven. Sometimes we minimize the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment that's described in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and it's elucidated in a number of passages in the Bible where every believer will give an account of himself to God. Not to see if you get into heaven, that's settled the moment you're born again. But it's a time of evaluation when God will look at our service. And I think sometimes we minimize the significance of it, and yet Paul says in heaven, some will suffer loss at this judgment. But even with that said... It pictures the love and compassion that God will have for us because he will wipe away, not one of his angels. He himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
And these are not tears of repentance, for no one in heaven will be able to repent. No one will go there as a lost man and be able to get right, as Clark Pinnock falsely taught, that men can have a second chance after death. Nothing could be further from the truth. But with that said, it doesn't mean even that we won't cry in heaven. These are tears of sorrow. But I think there'll be tears of joy there. I suspect we'll weep for joy when we see all the magnificence of God's grace and the full and proper function of our tear ducts will probably work perfectly there for all the right reasons. Now, in the rest of verse 4, John describes the conditions of this new Jerusalem in negative terms so our finy, puny, little finite minds can get it. Here, John is recording the joy of heaven by telling us what will not be there. And there are four no longers. I have them all underlined in my Bible. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Adam and Eve there in the garden brought sin into the world with sin, the Bible says death came with it. And so God had warned that the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But in heaven, there's no more death, not even the skin cells on your body that die each day. There'll be no death of any kind, no expression of death. Never fatigued in heaven. Your body will never need to be refreshed in heaven. Understand, heaven is not some eternal rest home. There's a lot that we're going to do in heaven, and we're going to discover this in the weeks ahead. But there's no fatigue in heaven, no wear and tear in heaven, no weakness in heaven, no disease in heaven, no decay in heaven. He also says there will no longer be any mourning. Some of your translations render that sorrow or grief. And this word is associated in the Bible with grief that comes through death and all the various heartbreaks of life. J.C. Ryle, the great British pastor, wrote this in the last century. He said, our worldly goods are taken from us, and we have sorrow. We are encompassed with difficulties and troubles, and we have sorrow. Our friends forsake us and look coldly on us, and we have sorrow. We are separated from those whom we love, and we have sorrow. Our own hearts are frail and full of corruption, and that brings sorrow. We are persecuted and opposed for the gospel's sake, and that brings sorrow. We see those who are near and dear to us refusing to walk with God, and that brings us sorrow. Oh, what a sorrowing, grieving world we live in. But thank God there'll be no sorrow, no mourning, no grief, depending on your translation. God will say, enough is enough. There'll be no longer any death. There'll be no longer any mourning or crying. You say, that's redundant. He just said that. No, it's a different word. And it's a word that is used to describe someone shouting or screaming. And it's never used metaphorically in the Scriptures, but only literally of someone who in grief or in anxiety is shouting out. In first century Koine Greek, it's used of the cry of a woman in intense labor. It's used in Koine Greek of the lamenting cry of a person who is being marched off to justice for the crime they have committed. 
The same word is used in Acts 7.57 of those who in their hatred screamed and cried out against that preaching deacon by the name of Stephen just before they executed him. There's another no longer. Notice there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Pain entered into the world with the fall. There was no pain prior to the fall. So Eve has promised in every woman thereafter that in childbirth they will experience pain. Adam has promised that the earth would be stubborn to plow, and by the sweat of his brow as he fought thorns and thistles, he would have to farm it. God put man on notice that sin brought consequences. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, said, pain is God's microphone to get our attention. And so this fallen couple, Adam and Eve, soon experienced pain, even over the death of their son, Abel, as Cain slaughtered him. Pain is just a part of life. We can't outrun pain. We can't erase pain, we can't hide from pain, we can't get vaccinated against pain, we can't shelter ourselves from pain, it just comes. But there's coming a time when there'll be no physical pain, and beyond that, there'll be no mental pain or emotional pain. No asylums in heaven, no triage there, no prosthetics, no more hospitals, no more arthritis, no more emergency rooms, no more fevers, no more shattered dreams. God says there'll be no pain of any kind, and so this is the last time you will ever read of pain in all of Holy Scripture. And John tells us why. The first things have passed away. In other words, he's saying the old order of things, the old way of life is gone for a new way. This is the great reversal that will be unfolding in the new Jerusalem. The first way of life on old planet Earth with all of its universal language of death and mourning and crying and pain will all be forever gone. You say it's too good to be true. You know what they say about things that are too good to be true? They're usually too good to be true. Well, it all depends on who's saying it. And just so you couldn't miss it, God underscores the reality of this. Look at verse 5. And he, this is the Father, who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Paraphrase, God says, I cannot lie. I'm the one who's giving you this message, this truth. I am the sovereign God, and I will make everything new. And you can count on this because I am promising this, and all of my promises are faithful and they are true. Now, I loved it when we moved into a brand new home one day. Something nice about going into a brand new home that no one else has polluted. Well, I want to tell you, someday we're going to move into a brand new world, and it's going to be in a brand new city that will come down through a brand new universe, and it will sit on here, and there'll be no funerals, no graves, no hospitals, no broken homes, no broken hearts, no broken hopes. It's going to be a glorious, magnificent place that the power of God can make, and His wisdom will be seen Listen, it's a permanent place, it's a prepared place, it's a pleasing place. Look also, heaven is a purified place. It's a purified place. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, again, the one speaking is the same one in verse 5. It's the father who is on the throne, and he describes himself here as the Alpha and the Omega. If you know Greek or at least learn the alphabet, as my grandchildren just did, they they wanted to recite the Greek alphabet to me. I said, I'm impressed. Then they recited the Hebrew alphabet to me. I'm even more impressed. The Alpha, that's the first letter in Greek. And the Omega, that's the last letter in Greek. Interpreted here by the phrase, the beginning and the end. In the English, we might say, I am the A and the Z. And so the Father is saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. If human existence and human knowledge and human history had an alphabet, then God would be the first letter and he'd be the last letter. He's saying, there was nothing before me and there's nothing beyond me and there's nothing after me. And by the way, this is the exact same expression that Jesus took upon himself in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. And when we come to it again in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus himself will also say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He will use a designation of himself that is uniquely used of the Father, but also of the Son. And here the Father promises that people will be able to drink without cost or freely from the spring of the water of life. And what did Jesus promise? Same promise. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and then out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. These things Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit, who was not yet given because he had not yet been glorified. He takes the same title, makes the same promise. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are inseparable. We just baptized some new believers, not in the names, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And the Father here says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The King James says, freely. The Net Bible says, free of charge. You can't buy eternal life. You can't merit heaven. You can't achieve it. It's already been paid for. It is the gift of God, and it's been paid for with Jesus' sinless blood. And so here God is promising that in heaven, the deepest needs of the human heart will be met. Every thirst, every longing will be totally met. And then he says in verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. He overcomes, we've seen that throughout the book already, eight other times. This reference of overcomers is not used to describe the spiritually elite who have been successful in their Christian life. It is used throughout the Revelation to describe every true born-again, blood-bought child of God. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, next to verse 7, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Let me read to you what John wrote in his first letter. For whoever is born of God, or begotten of God, or born again of God, depending on your translation, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. (laughs) This promise is not just for the spiritually elite. 
If you are saved, then the Bible says you are an overcomer and you will indeed inherit all things. God is speaking and he explains that he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. That expresses intimacy. In the great Chicago fire of 1871, Dwight L. Moody, the Again, the Billy Graham of his day, the evangelist, went back to survey the ruins of his home, and a friend came to Moody and said, I heard you lost everything. Well, said Mr. Moody, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. What do you mean, his friend asked. I didn't know you were a wealthy individual. Moody opened his Bible and he read this verse, Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Overcomers. Now, he's not speaking of perfect people. But listen, when you're born from above, you have a new direction. So John can say, who has overcome the world? It's those who have faith in Jesus. Did John describe the people in his first letter as perfect? No. He said, the one who says he's not a sinner is a liar, and he's made God out to be a liar. But there's a new direction. It is impossible for someone to be inhabited by the Spirit of God and not have a change of life. And if your life hasn't changed, you better look hard because you may have a false profession. Look at verse 8. He's making a contrast here. What a distinction between verses 1 through 7 and verse 8 and one little three-letter word, two in Greek, separated. But, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are not the overcomers described in verse 8. These are the people who are overcome by sin. They're driven by sin. Now, the Christian today is considered a loser. But the real losers, sadly, are these people. He speaks of them as cowardly. People who did not have the courage to stand up for Jesus Christ. This refers to many who may even call themselves a Christian, but were too ashamed to receive Jesus and to confess him before men publicly. That's why Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. That's why we do a public invitation, and I make no apologies for it. People who know Jesus are not ashamed of Jesus. But notice also in the verse, he describes the abominable. It's a Greek word that means polluted. Those who have indulged in sin is a way of life, and so they are polluted in mind and body and spirit. Then he mentions murderers, the fellow in Chicago who takes a gun and kills a police officer, the person who kills his neighbor, the person who hates with his heart because to hate your brother, Jesus said, is to be a murderer, the abortionist who wants to take innocent little lives. 
And what a mess our nation is. And the wicked, wicked, wicked governors of Virginia and New York and North Carolina who signed a bill who said if the mother with her doctor wants to kill her baby on her birthday, then they can do it. And everyone on that Democratic platform endorsed that move along with wicked homosexual behavior. I'm sorry if you're a Democrat, but that is a wicked thing. And there are wicked Republicans. This is not a political thing. This is a moral issue we are dealing with. Murderers. Then he adds immoral persons. It's the word pornos. We get our word pornography. It is used in the New Testament to refer to any illicit practice of sexual behavior outside of marriage. It would include the adulterer, extramarital sex, the fornicator, premarital sex, the homosexual, the rapist, the pedophile, even the movie producer who lauds this behavior and produces it for Americans to watch. Then he adds the sorcerer. It's the Greek word pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. And so, yes, in just a few months, even in our own state house, we will decide as a state whether or not we will legitimize pot like 21 states have done. It's wicked. It's an upside-down mind. It's a depraved, reprobate mind where men call evil good and good evil. And the word pharmakia is used in Scripture, often translated as sorcery. People who are using drugs are entering into the demonic world. Listen, Mr. Pothead, you are entering into some dangerous realms when you suck down that reefer. Then he mentions idolaters. Idolatry is anything or any one you put above the living God, murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. He finishes with liars. We'll spend a lot of time on that in the next chapter, so I'll wait on it. You're probably saying, Pastor Carl, you just condemned a lot of people to hell. I didn't condemn anyone to hell. I'm just telling you what John wrote here, and it came from the breath of the Spirit of God. However, understand, every one of us are here somewhere on this list. The point of the message is not to say that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The point is, is that everyone is guilty. Everyone is worthy of the wrath of God. For there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And these classes of people who will be thrown into the lake of fire will be there. I missed it, but let me say it. The unbelieving... That's the most sobering category because unbelief is the father of all sins. It opened the gates of Eden to sin, and it will keep people out of the new Jerusalem and the new world. Now, we studied in chapter 20 that their part will be in the fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So this passage is not referring to salvation by works, but it is referring to overcomers versus those who do not overcome. Those who are overcome by sin, the Scripture never speaks of perfect people. It never speaks of the perfection, but it does speak of the direction of the believer. Do you have a new direction in your life? You are saved by grace alone, but the faith that saves and the grace that saves is never ever alone. It changes you. 
And once this separation between the overcomers and the non-overcomers is fixed, it can never be undone. Jesus said, and beside all this between you and me, there's a, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may be able to cross over from there to us. Heaven is a purified place, off limits to the lost people. One pastor, wife, her name is Joy. She teaches a Bible study in a neighborhood that's pretty rough. And in her class was one young lady, one teenage girl, sad, fearful. We'll call her Barbara. And Barbara, you know, lives in a home where she was afraid and fearful and abused. A home filled with drunkenness and drug use and sexual immorality. And while all the other girls would speak in the Bible study, she'd be silent week after week. When they sang, she never sang. When they laughed, she never laughed. But she came week after week after week. And one day, Miss Joy gave a lesson on heaven. And when she started to speak of heaven, she looked up. When she learned that there's no death and no sorrow and no crying and no pain, she raised her hand and Miss Joy was somewhat surprised. Yes, Barbara. She said, could someone like me go to this place called heaven? And Miss Joy said, yes. It's made for sinful girls like you and like me. Do you know that heaven is made for saved sinners? And if you've never met him, there's no more important decision in your whole life because what you do with Jesus will in the end determine what he will do with you. Receive him, and though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. You reject him. You ignore him. You choose not to believe him. And you will remember the words of this pastor pleading with you this morning to come to Jesus for all of eternity. Now, our Father, we don't deserve such a place. If you had done nothing, if the Lord Jesus had never stepped out of the throne of glory and come to earth, it would have been fair. But thank you that you did everything, that he can shout from the cross to tell us die. It is finished. It's paid in full. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the debt I owed that I could never pay but for an eternity in hell, you paid for me on my behalf. And thank you, because you did what you did, your Father can promise what he promises, that whoever will call on your name will be saved. Father, help someone today to admit that they are bankrupt, that they cannot save themselves, that their sin condemns them, and in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Would you say that in faith? Mean it, believe it, knowing that God is faithful and true. He cannot lie. Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, you have entrusted to us the gospel. 
We are stewards of the gospel, your word says. And yet you said the harvest is still great and the laborers are so few. And so many of us, Father, sadly, are afraid to crack a bead of sweat for the kingdom of God. And we can't remember the last time we warned someone of their need to come to Jesus. Father, help us in this new week to be faithful laborers for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here and you've never openly, publicly confessed Jesus as Lord, I want to give you that chance. Maybe you're here and you've not been baptized as we just saw. These who are baptized as an emblem, as a symbol of their faith. You do it after you're saved. There's no infant baptism in the Bible. The Scripture says believe and then be baptized. Man reversed it. God's Word is clear. Maybe you're here, you're a believer, you need a church home, and you want to be a part of this church family. You may be in the Bluffton Hilton Head campus. You may be in Graniteville this morning or there in Grays, South Carolina. But you're listening and God is speaking to your heart and you know there's a decision you need to make. I want to invite you to leave your seat and to come here to the front. Step out now and meet me here.